Welcome to another edition of BartCast, a podcast series curated by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. Learn more at bcm-net.org. of this book are a peculiar people, particularly you Baptists, but that, uh, no, we really are, and, and a big part of what makes us peculiar is that we are still reading these peculiar stories. But I believe that these peculiar stories have a peculiarly relevant uh, power to bring to our uh, post-Christendom world. And so that, that's part of what this exercise is, is to just keep trying to help these scriptures make sense. So then comes the final plague. <clears throat> uh, that's the one we know because it inspires the elaborate liturgy of Passover. And if you've never celebrated Pesach with Jews, Try to make that happen. Um, it's an amazing ancient tradition uh, that helps keep this powerful story alive and subversive. The stark lesson in this longest plague episode is really in a nutshell this. The powerful only respond when their own children are directly threatened. And then sometimes not even then. And then sometimes not even then. A particularly moving moment in this famous drama is verse 12:42. It says, "It was for the Lord a night of vigil to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That same night is a vigil to be kept by all the Israelites throughout the generations. This is the institution of watch night, which has been so important to African American Christians for the last 155 years or so. On New Year's Eve, uh, many black churches still hold worship uh, services. We, we lost our uh, image there. Right, let me try again. There we go. Whoop. There we go. Still hold worship services from late evening till midnight when they welcome in the new year with Thanksgiving prayer and confession. These are called watch night meetings, and they commemorate December 31st, 1862 the night before the Emancipation Proclamation took effect. See, the black community also preserves the Exodus story as a living one, better than just about anyone else, in my opinion. And I commend that experience to you as well. So put that on your list. Passover with Jews, watch night in the black church. This story is a living one. But creation's partnership in forcing Pharaoh to relent is not finished. The Hebrews organize their massive labor strike and walk out and are led out into the unknown by 
a pillar of fire. Of course, one last time, Pharaoh changes his mind and pursues the Israelites into the wilderness with the 5th uh, Infantry Brigade. Now the sea opens up to escort the escaped slaves, escaped slaves to freedom. Nature is a huge character in this drama. And then that same sea closes up around the Egyptian militia. Oh, Mary, don't you weep, don't you moan. Oh, Mary, don't you weep, don't you moan. Pharaoh's army got drowned. Oh, Mary, don't you weep. Fire and water, primal elements of nature and archetypal to boot. Creation has conspired in liberation, setting a theme that will recur many more times throughout our scriptures. So why is this narrative so marginal in our churches? I acknowledge that this is a difficult narrative for at least two reasons. First, because the revolt of the earth generates many victims, human and non-human. This is not a fairy tale nor a superhero story. People die, lots of them, in this ancient warning tale. This is something later Jewish Midrash often wrestles with. And the issue of ethical responsibility is thorny, to be sure. The Exodus narrative, consistent with the cosmology of Jewish monotheism, imputes the agency ultimately to God. Yahweh orders the Exodus. Yahweh conjures the plagues. Yahweh hardens Pharaoh's heart. God is the sole director, so to speak, of the whole drama. But this is where we have to resist simplistic literalism. The clear theopolitical implication of the narrative is that empire has brought all of this on itself. The revolt is generated by the groan of oppression. It is extended only because of the duplicity of Pharaoh's administration. And the story culminates in the just liberation of slaves despite the determined efforts of the empire to keep them locked down. It is, in other words, a story that imagines the di divine execution of justice, though the path is tortured and costly. We don't have to take the plagues literally to see how they articulate mythically a historical reality, namely that it was the over-exploitation of resources that led to the ecological collapse of ancient empires Jared Diamond has explored this concerning Mesopotamia in his important 2005 study of how irrigation agriculture in the ancient Fertile Crescent over two millennia resulted in silt and alkaline degradation that doomed history's first empires. Tomorrow morning I'm going to look at how deforestation was a major factor in the eastern Mediterranean, one we see reflected in the biblical prophets. In other words, nature did indeed rebel against imperial presumption, sometimes slowly, sometimes dramatically, but always inevitably. <clears throat> uh, and you don't have to be theologically committed to speak of this in terms of judgment. Witness the conclusion of well-known scientist James Lovelock concerning our climate crisis. We are now witnessing, he wrote a decade ago, the revenge of Gaia. The resonance, friends, between ancient stories of scripture and modern science is stunning and sobering all at once. Now, I want <coughs> to 
cite my beloved theological professor and Baptist, James McClendon, a southerner who spent his teaching career in California. As you know, he celebrated small b Baptist identity, uh, and I'm sure many of you have been directly or indirectly influenced by his work. For Jim, the Baptist vision is a communal orientation towards scripture and the world in which the text is understood to be of immediate relevance. That's one of his hallmarks of the Baptist vision. He often summarized this with reference to Peter's famous speech in Acts 2.16, which, by the way, is traditionally read on Pentecost, coming up in just three weeks. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet. In short, Jim said, the Baptist vision sees scripture in the world as though this is that, then is now. And this morning we've seen a dramatic example of how an old story illuminates a contemporary dilemma. Which brings us to the second reason this is a tough story, at least for people like most of us here. The, later, uh, the late Robert McAfee Brown used to worry about how North American Christians could legitimately read the Exodus, since in terms of the power relations within that story, our vantage point could only be located within Pharaoh's household. In 2002, activist scholar Laurel Dykstra, dear friend coming out of the Catholic Worker Movement, now a watershed discipleship minister in British Columbia, more about her tomorrow morning, published a commentary on Exodus that precisely takes this approach. As a white, first world, North American, able-bodied Protestant Christian, she writes, if I am to bring my own experience to Exodus, then I must identify with the Egyptians and the villains of the story. Oh, my, 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 we Americans don't like to identify with the villains. This is a great book. I highly recommend it. <clears throat> but we are the Egyptians who have brought about the climate crisis. Here are a couple of simple charts that show how climate crisis is rooted in persistent, historic, and systemic inequality. Just as wealth is unequally spread across the globe, so too are environmental impacts. We in the U.S. have by far the largest ecological footprint, as you know, and those of us who are economically privileged within this society have the largest footprint of all. This is a map from Al Gore's Global Warming Project, shows the uneven per capita responsibility for emitting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. It shows that culpability lies squarely at the doorstep of the first world. So eco <clears throat> ecological disparity is a justice issue in which the haves of the industrial world are again undermining the quality of life of the have-nots, and several of our workshops will explore this. This has led some to question whether the term Anthropocene uh, is an adequate shorthand for our crisis. Because it's not humanity in general that has brought us to this end game, as the term implies. We cannot say that Australian Aborigines or Mexican farm workers or African American factory workers or Filipino contract laborers have brought this crisis about. No, it's that part of humanity that has both driven and benefited from the industrialization of the world and the globalization of capitalism. And that would be us. Jason Moore argues that we should instead use the term capitalocene. The Anthropocene, he writes, does not challenge the naturalized inequalities, alienation, and violence inscribed in modernity's strategic relations of power production and capital. 
Annette Singh calls it the plantationocene. She writes, the exploited, alienated, and often transported labor used by the slave plantation system was the model and motor for the carbon-greedy machine-based factory system that is often cited as an inflection point for the Anthropocene. The plantation system was the model for modern industrial capitalism. Mm. So how does this focus our recontextualization of the Exodus plagues? I want to show again the graph of the increase of natural disasters over the last four decades. This, what is routinely now called extreme weather, is that, the Exodus plagues. Nature is rebelling against empire. In our case, the consequence of our relentless resource exploitation, overconsumption, and carbon addiction. So Hurricane Katrina in 2005 was a wake-up call to both climate crisis and racialized social disparity, as chronicled by Michael Eric Dyson's 2007 book, Come Hell or High Water. But the hearts of our political and industrial pharaohs were too hard to change. Superstorm Sandy in 2012 was a wake-up call for rising oceans and climate chaos, as analyzed by Adam Sobel in his 2014 book, Storm Surge. The pharaoh's hearts were somewhat moved because this time it was the Washington-New York corridor that was impacted, hello. But they soon hardened again. And Maria and Irma and Thomas last year, these wake-up calls elicited, elicited only unprecedented hardness of heart from our new chief pharaoh, pictured here in his famous lob of paper towels to officials in Puerto Rico so they could mop up the disaster. My Lord. Our first world obstinacy ensures that the plagues will keep coming and keep intensifying just as in the Exodus story. Here's a map of what NOAA's National Centers for Environmental Information now call billion dollar weather events. Just last year, there were no less than 17 that qualified. I've talked about Thomas. You may have your own stories. And NOAA has already named three more this year. The harbingers keep coming, and the hearts of our ruling pharaohs grow colder and harder with every policy initiative, with every political appointment, with every military intervention, but also our own hearts as we keep driving and consuming like there is no tomorrow, thus making the last tomorrow of climate catastrophe inevitable. So the choice facing us, and I know everybody in this room knows this, and we all often talk condescendingly about preaching to the choir, but this weekend, folks, we're just looking through the hymnal, trying to find resources for this work, right? The choice facing us as Christians is clear. It is either denial or discipleship. As noted at the outset this morning, the purpose of biblical apocalyptic and prophetic judgment oracles are not just to unveil reality or threaten judgment, but to stimulate repentance which again means to struggle to turn our personal and political history around, 
in an age of climate crisis this call to conversion gives a new meaning to the old baptist adage wait for it But you know what? The ultimatum turn or burn is the real work of this conference. Tell that to your conservative friends. <laughs> to equip us for the discipleship work of turning history around. To recover enough of a sense of beloved community with earth, the focus of tomorrow's Bible study, to intervene in our own collective and individual addictions, to stand with the poor who are affected first and worst, by the climate plagues and to resist the carbon pharaohs, which means our own leaders and our own deeply entrenched habits. Now, I happen to prefer the adage of St. John of Chrysostom. I don't know if you can see that. Um, but we cannot afford to be stuck in shame responses to our sinful hard-heartedness and our carbon addictions because they only paralyze us. True repentance leads to bold action, right? So what bold actions are we planning this weekend as a denominational body, as Baptist parishes, as citizens of conscience? Some people of faith are already directly reappropriating the Exodus story in their public witnesses in the action taken by Interfaith Witness for Climate Action in Boston just one month ago. Inspired the work of, by the work of Arthur Waskow, the group drew on the symbolism of Holy Week, Holy Week and Passover to confront the governor of Massachusetts in an action entitled, Let My People Go, Exodus from Fossil Fuels. Their Exodus procession was to halt an invasion of poisonous oil gas pipelines that carbon pharaohs are trying to place in nearby neighborhoods. That's good religion. It's the sort of animating public liturgy we can bring to the struggle. You have been listening to the BartCast, produced by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. To find our resources or to donate to support the BartCast, please go to chedmyers.org. Thank you for listening. <laughs>